Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. The last hour of the week I spend with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of their key members of their faculty, talking about the events of the week and a key text from the Western canon. You can find all of these podcasts and a passport to all of the great online lecture series offered by Hillsdale at hugh4hillsdale.com, H-U-G-H-F-O-R, hillsdale.com. Dr. Larry Arn, welcome back. Good to talk to you as always. And Mark Stein says hello to you. Yeah, he was on the campus this week, I understand, and was introduced by my law school roommate's son. I got the uh, introduction sent to me. And I I couldn't be there last night, but uh, today Mark told me that that butler boy was hilarious. (laughs) And you had long since drained the humor out of his dad. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Now, let me ask you about immigration. We will go back to Genesis, where we began last week after the break. But the immigration debate has broken this week, I've talked to Senators Rubio and Flake and Rand Paul to Raul Labrador to David Brooks to Mark Stein. Everybody's talking about one thing, which is what to do with these 11 million people in the country who are not here with authorization. What would the framers do? Uh, well, first of all, of course, back in that day, there, there wasn't any authorization possible. There wasn't. In fact, the first immigration law was passed in about 1900. And uh, and what it said was, for the first time, a ship captain had to hand in a manifest of the people on board when he landed in an American port. But before that, you could just come. And uh, what what would they think about it now? That's yes. a, you know, one has to speculate. But um, America is a set of practices and beliefs. It's not a race, and and it is a place. But that place has grown very greatly over its history. So the question would be about these people who are legally here, what are their practices and beliefs? And you could find out about that by looking, but they would they would be influenced by that, I think. I was uh, very lucky to read a, a piece by David Fyth uh, on the UNO charter school system in Chicago, populated largely by Mexican children. And I mean Mexican, not Mexican-Americans. Uh, profoundly successful, very uh, uh, challenging to the establishment, populated by the dedicated sort of teachers that Hillsdale turns out for charter schools everywhere. You know, it's very possible to teach citizenship, Dr. Larry Arn, and I think that one of the things that many Americans are afraid of about these 11 million is that we no longer know how or care not to do so. Well, changes in it, there are two differences between modern immigration and the way it was before. One is the people come from nearby. It's border immigration. Right, and that means that often they have contacts on the other side of the border that are close and that are sustained, and this and that's a big difference, right? And uh, the second one is the country is different in some very important ways, and you just named one, the education system, but also if you came to America in 1920, then you better get a job because there wasn't a way to live unless you got one, right? And everybody was looking for work. So it's a different country, and, and the education thing is perhaps more serious, and that is we don't really teach people. You know, I mean, I got a thing from the Michigan Department of Education one time, and they said that we didn't meet the standard because we said we taught Western civilization, of which America was a part, and they said global and multicultural perspectives must permeate the curriculum. Oh, my gosh. And we told them to go stick it. <laughs> And, and uh, you know, but that's the, that's the way, right? And so 
we're 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 not as good one fears at assimilating people because we're not so assimilated ourselves as we were. That's remarkable. Juan Rangel, the uh, Democrat who runs this school, gets pushback because he insists on American citizenship, not global citizenship, and rejects bilingualism. So the the cadre, the 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 interest network, hate him. But I mean, he's a Democrat. He had Mexican parents. You know, it's it's an amazing thing. But he buy he does not buy into this global citizenship stuff because you believe in he believes in our one country with its one set of founding principles, easily transferable. So let me ask you this: uh, I've been waiting. I I don't know I, if I can even predict the answer to this. You often say the Homestead Act, which settled ten percent of the United States, was a genius in economy. How long was it? Thirteen hundred and forty words. And what did it accomplish? gave uh, 10% of the land area away to close to 3 million families for free on condition that they would live on the land for five years and work. So a 1,300, that's less than the president's inaugural address by 30%. No, by, you know, almost 50%. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, so the question is, does an immigration reform law to work, does it have to be long and detailed or could it be short and understandable? Well, you know, the bipartisan bill, they're calling it, uh, which Rubio and, and some Republicans have signed on to in Flake, and which some very liberal Democrats have signed on to, is, is simple in its principles, and that has the makings of a good bill. And, you know, I don't know what it's called. The devil is in the details on this stuff. There's a lot of difficulty with this immigration reform and a lot of danger to the country in it. But having said that... They should write, you know, by the way, if I were running the Republican Party, uh, I would be dead probably, but, yeah. uh, but I would focus on trying, trying to write short, simple, and beautiful bills. And this could be one, and that would be great. I have been urging everyone who will listen, and I think I had a couple of converts this week, that the cause of immigration reform ought to be merged with the cause of education reform, and that as part of any regularization we authorize these newly regularized children, of whom there are a million under the age of 18 who are not in the country legally, to go to any school they want and to, in fact, to assist them to go to a private school. And, of course, I got pushback from Americans who wonder why their kids wouldn't get such a thing. And, of course, I explain it's a wedge, <laughs> that it's, it's a way to turn the system upside down. But what do you think about if the train is leaving, let's put some cargo on it that ought to be good for everyone? Well, there ought, you know, I mean, first of all, the problem... You know, Harry Byrd, Robert Byrd, got through a bill that requires every college to celebrate and memorialize in some way Constitution Day. Well, what most of them do is defame or criticize the Constitution on Constitution Day. And so we're not, you know, we're not equipped, Hugh, right now for a major revival of the respect for America because a lot of very informed people don't respect it. And you're not going to change that overnight. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a, a, a book review of a school teacher in England who had taught the Christian faith in this school and found that the kids loved it. And C.S. Lewis said, what an encouraging story. It doesn't prove we ought to pass a law to require that, because this guy believes in the thing. He's likely to do a good job. So we're not going to fix it except by a steady, long revival of knowledge and understanding, and then more people will love the principles of America because they are, in fact, beautiful. 
But we ought to put into a bill that is likely to pass the building blocks of that revival insofar as we understand what they are, because it's a unique opportunity given political circumstances. And this goes to your valuing prudence and Paul Ryan's speech about prudence at the National Review Institute this weekend. If there's going to be an opportunity to make progress, make the progress. Don't just stand in the opposition, uh, you know, athwart history yelling stop. Well, Obama is doing a very good job since the election, standing up for the principles of America, although he doesn't know what they are. Or he maybe he does know, but he changes them, right? It's very artful how he does it. We have to answer that. And, you know, his, his speech on the immigration thing was pretty good. And his second inaugural address was pretty good, except it is dangerous, in my opinion. And so we have to get better at that, and that means standing up for civic education is a crucial thing to do, and we ought to know what it is, and we ought to support it. Did you happen to see Paul Ryan's speech at the National Review Institute? I did not. Well, he valued prudence. He spoke, and I wondered whether or not the Mystic Chords address you gave at the at the gathering of Republicans spoke to this, which is the art of the possible in the in the in the middle of politics. But it was refreshing to hear a Republican say, "We don't have to lose every battle. We don't have to win every battle. We have to act with wisdom." Yeah. Well, and there's two sides to prudence. Paul knows this well. Paul, you know, Paul's really good. And uh, even if he did make fun of me before my speech to the Republican group, <laughs> an additional. Prudence has two parts, right? And one part, the, the truth that prudence find, finds is in the circumstances, and it makes the best of them. But the light by which it sees is the ultimate thing. And so we should always be talking, as we didn't in this recent campaign, about the principles of freedom and their content and disagreeing with opponents who get that wrong. And we don't do a very good job of that. And so part of prudence is to compromise when you must, and always in some sense. But the other part of prudence, as Churchill said, we must never cease to proclaim in fearless tones the principles of freedom. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnn of Hillsdale College. In the interim, go over to q4hillsdale.com for all of the podcasts, past and present. We return for our second week in Genesis. After this, stay tuned. 21 minutes after the Hour Americans, Hugh Hewitt, thank you for listening. This is the Hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue. Weekly, I talk with either Dr. Larry Arn or one of the other great members of the Hillsdale College faculty about uh, one of the great canons in Western literature, one of the great books from the canon of Western literature. And last week, we began to talk about Genesis. And of course, we went slower than we thought, which I think is actually a regular problem with the Churchill Seminar that Dr. Arn conducts at Hillsdale. Is that the truth? Is that correct? Of course. Of course. And so I want to go back and reset for our listeners who are, that you had three major points you wanted to make about Genesis last week. I think we got to one of them. Let's begin at the beginning and tell them what those overarching points are. Okay. Uh, the first point is um, the beginning of Genesis is a kind of allegorical or something like that, maybe mythical story of the creation of the earth, and it establishes certain principles about the relation between God and everything else, including man. At, at about chapter 12, Genesis becomes the story of a founding of a people. There is a particular people, and they are subjected to the incredibly difficult duty of being God's chosen people, and they're not always very good at it. And then the third point is, this is 
story about this people has a unique feature different from other things in the ancient world and that is this people is somehow carrying a message for the benefit of all of us and that's one reason the duty is so hard and, and so in in terms of that shift on or around the, the, the 11th to 12th chapter of Genesis, uh, is it important for people to switch the way they read at that point? No. The, the right, well, first of all, the way you read any great or important thing is to let it talk to you, see what it says. And if you read carefully, you will see that something different happens, right? Now, all of a sudden, there are people with names and things are happening that, that also happen in our ordinary lives. And they go and they settle and they're commanded to do this and they have children and the children do this and that and the next thing. And so it's a, it's a much more human, regular story. So when you uh, welcome freshmen to Hillsdale, I am sure that you welcome a variety of theological perspectives as to the creation narrative. And some will hold that it is literally true, and others will say it is allegorical, and uh, I always say mythological is a story intended to be believed, and so it's a good way to get across that divide between. But how do you handle that at the college? Well, first of all, it's a college, right? So you start by reading it. What can you make of it, right? And I personally believe it's literally true, but you have to figure out what it's saying to you, right? It, It doesn't give an account of who the second generation what women they found around to marry, right? Where they come from? And did they marry their sisters? But there are no sisters reported. There's a lot of things in there that are not, that are, that are left unexplained, and I think that that means that those things are in some important sense symbols. But I think the later story tends to be more detailed, and I believe that the whole thing hangs together logically if you read it right. And, uh, and, and read it right means read it as best you can as it's talking to you. Read it for what it says. What does it say that the knowledge of good and evil tree is the one that's not supposed to be taken from? Well, that's, that's hard to figure because, and I'll tell you what the problem is, and I'll tell you what I think it means. It's hard to figure because, because as I said last week, man is created in the image of God, and he can name things because he can talk he has the gift of reason and speech and god names things and then later adam comes and he and eve and they they name things and they're the name givers right that means they're speakers well you can't really use the gift of human reason without knowing the difference between good and evil and so this that means they they must have already had that and by the way they did somehow, in some sense, for sure, because they were immediately ashamed of what they had done, but they had reservations about it, about eating the apple or the fruit, before they did it, right? Mm -hmm. So, this knowledge of good and evil, in my opinion, means some setting up of oneself as a standard outside of God for things like that. And, and I think the command was given, so as I read it, and as I say, it's a puzzle, but as I read it, I think the command was given in order to establish that there was a boundary, the Word of God. Interesting. Now, our friend Dennis Prager, and he is your friend, and I have much, much, much more mixed emotions about him, but our friend Dennis Prager stunned me one time by telling me the serpent in the garden does not represent Satan, that Orthodox Jewelry doesn't actually believe in a Satan, 
and that so I you know most ordinary Christian interpretations of this are erroneous. What do you think? Uh, well, I think it represents Satan. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it, it is an evil force, right? And it it, uh, it can be a snake, right? So it appears as a snake, and so you know I read it as the fallen angel. And that and he and, and he went on to explain. Jews don't believe in the fallen angel narrative. So we do. And and I'm curious as to whether you can, in three minutes or less to the break, explain to people the West's understanding of the role of evil and, and not become you know, bogged down in Manichaean terminology. Well, it's it's uh, I think so. The point is, good and evil cannot be equals. That is, say, two alternative forces that contend with each other on some kind of equal equal footing because if they were equal on an equal footing how could they how would you know one of them was evil so you have to have some standard outside them by which you call one of them good and one of them evil that's the first step in the argument and the simplest there's only one more and it's pretty simple and that is every evil thing is really only a good thing spoiled so if you look at an evil dog it's a dog that doesn't act like a dog it bites the wrong people if you look at an at, at a cup that is not a good cup one example of thing would be a cup that had a hole in the bottom and and you can't understand it as a bad cup until you know what a good cup is so good e- evil is a derivative idea and the biblical story in the new testament about the fall is the story of not just a good thing, but a superbly good thing, one of the, the brightest of the angels, the angel of light, becoming envious of God and, and, and falling for that reason, rather like the story about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there he is in the garden, imperfection in the perfection. Right. That, that's, uh, and, and that, you know, in other words, this this serpent story is the story of someone giving bad counsel and giving it by speech. But the gift of speech is how we indicate, as Aristotle says, the just and the unjust, the advantageous and the disadvantageous. He is using it for an evil person, purpose. That is a fallenness of the gift of speech. I'll be right back to continue with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, in our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. These are available, by the way, over at... uh q4hillsdale.com the previous week's dialogue and they're getting the website up and running plus you've got the new american civilization history course all you have to do is it's free hillsdale does this for your benefit it's free uh q4hillsdale.com i'll be right back america with dr larry arn here on the hugh hewitt show 34 minutes after the hour it's hugh hewitt with dr larry arn of hillsdale college our weekly hillsdale dialogue on one of the great books we're talking about genesis last week and this week Lesson number two of the big three out of Genesis, Larry Arn. Um, uh, I said that it was the story of a people, right? And and here's the thing about this people: uh, they go through the Dickens, right? They uh, they you know God comes and before Abraham, they were all people, and there wasn't any specific sign that any of them was important. But God goes to Abram, Abram living in Ur of Chaldea, which I think is in southern Iran. And or Iraq, and he uh, and he says, "Go over there and do this, and I'm going to make you a great people." And and 
you're going to you're going to do stuff for me. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then the the rest of Genesis is the story of the founding of this people. Now, in that story, there are some very hard aspects. For example, God asking Abram to sacrifice his son Isaac and getting pretty close. You know, it's a it's a thriller. Whether or not this comes off, what kind of a God does that? Uh, a jealous God, uh, a God who thou shalt have no other gods before me, a supreme God, and this God is loyal to his people when they're loyal to him, but that loyalty, they can't be his chosen people unless they have that faithfulness to him. They must do as he says, and uh, his commandments are for the good. And that particular one is amazingly well chosen because the Old Testament in general, and this book of Genesis in particular, is a story of a family a people descended by birth from the fathers. And so, you know, the promise to Abraham is, I'm going to give you a lot of kids, number like the sands, like the, like the grains of sand. And so to ask him to kill his firstborn would disrupt the whole making of the people. And that establishes then that God is supreme and must be obeyed. It's very important to the story that that is the thing that Abram is, Abraham is asked to do, and also it's important to the story that he does not actually do it, because it is understood by everyone in the story and from the perspective of the book of Genesis that that's a horrific thing to be asked to do. And it is also understood that that family develops through treachery. Uh, Jacob uh, steals the birthright from the brother Esau who's owed it. Uh, what's that? When you sit around with the, uh, the Hillsdale students, you can't be recommending them the ethics of Jacob, can you? Well, if their mother tells them to. <laughs> <laughs> then it's different, isn't it? <laughs> no. I <don't. laughs> no, I, I think that, that's, a, see, that's, a, that's another thing, right? Because Jacob is a really important guy, right? Yes. His name is changed, changed to Israel, and his sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he was second born. And he is understood to be more excellent than Esau, although Esau has the advantage of Abel over Cain. He's a meat maker and uh, makes better stuff, better to eat. So, but, but Jacob is in some way superior, and he's not first born. But the principle of descent is firstborn are important, right? And so that's an interesting story, and one can think a long time about that. My own opinion of it, if you want to know it, is that it's an indication, and, and it carries some of the same uh, messages as Abraham and Isaac. It's an indication that lineage is not all, that excellence before the Lord, service and faithfulness to the Lord, is ultimately the main thing. It's a very uh, subversive story, one would imagine, throughout all of Western culture, because there's always going to be a Jacob who's always going to want to replace an Esau. Yeah, and he, but, but you know, Esau gets a lot, you know, he, he gets a good birthright, too, he just doesn't get the main one. 
and and but and Jacob is understood in some way or another to be in the wrong there, right? He, it'd be better if he hadn't have done that. But you, you know, you can ask the question: Why would an omnipotent God not make him born first if he liked him better? Sure. And the answer is, you know, it didn't please him to do that. But also, there must be a lesson in it. As I say, I think the lesson is that excellence before the Lord is more important than birth. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College for the last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. Joseph and his amazing Technicolor coat next on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 44 minutes after the Our American Hugh Hewitt with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College in our weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. This week talking about Genesis. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at hugh4hillsdale.com as are the amazing Hillsdale courses. Completely free. Just sign up. Get in Primus. Get involved in the college. The American Heritage course begins on February 25th. You can register for it now. Larry Arn, I want to talk to you about Joseph for a moment. And I begin with this anecdote. Each year I teach the Youngstown Sheet and Tube case, and Justice Jackson has a concurrence in it in which he refers to Joseph's dreams as being uh, very difficult to interpret, uh, but that uh, he will try and interpret, as Joseph did, the dreams of Pharaoh, the precedence of the early uh, constitution uh, uh, interpretations of the court. And each year I ask my students, who knows what he's talking about? And the number has declined precipitously over the 15 years I've been asking. Oh, we're, that's too bad. We're down to about the Mormons now uh, <laughs> uh, because the musical the musical is not much in abundance. And it's a wonderful story. I think this may be my favorite story, actually, in the Old Testament. Oh, really? Well, it. Um, for, so let me mention my third point because Joseph is connected to it. Um, my third point is that this people who's chosen, who are chosen, are chosen for all of us. The promise to Abraham is, be my God, uh, I will be your God, you will be my people, and this will be a blessing to all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now what happens is, Jacob or, I, or, or Israel's got all these kids, and one of them is Joseph, and he likes him really well, he's younger, and the brothers get jealous because he gets his coat, and they, they, they think they... They pretend to kill him, and they sell him off into slavery. And he ends up uh, in Egypt, and he has a divine gift, because to, to God, the present and the past and the future are all one and all always present. So someone who can see the future and interpret mysteries has a kind of divine gift. And Joseph had that. And it gets him out of prison, uh, and then it helps him predict for the king that he'd better save up a lot because there's going to be seven fat years and seven good years, seven bad years. And the point about this is, this is where Genesis ends, the effect of this is that God's people are all in Egypt, and they're in a different country, and it's a great and powerful country. And this is what gets them down there. And that is set the stage so they can all come back, which they do in the book of Exodus, the next book, which of course comes from two Greek words, the word hodos means road, Exodus is just the road out. And, and, uh, and so Joseph is part of this grand scheme of God, and think what is accomplished by this, right? Because the excellence of God's people is displayed on the largest stage in the world because they fall under the slavery of the most powerful ruler in the world, and then they come away from him with God's direct help, 
where God does the greatest marvels that he does in the whole Bible. I mean, until the New Testament. We'll argue with Dennis Prager about that. Huh. But, uh, but um, he, he, and see, that is on display on the world stage, right? And, that's, and that is a very important part of the story of the Jews. It is. Let me ask you about one thing about Joseph. Uh, he reveals himself to his brothers, and he forgives them, and he asks, is my father still living? It's a very emotional scene in Genesis chapter 45, but he forgives him. And that is not, that's really not very common. In fact, some people would say that's not very Old Testament for the powerful, powerful right arm of the Pharaoh to forgive his brothers who threw him into a hole and left him to die and be sold into slavery, that sort of thing. Uh, surprising, and what's it tell you? Well, it's the family principle, right? They have to be a people, and so they have to be a family. They have to they have to carry on, right? They have to give rise to a great people that are very numerous, right? If you look at the peak of the Jewish story, which is in the time of Solomon, and you know, by the way, the peak was very brief. Um, the story is very long, and the peak is very brief. But at the peak of that story, the great number of the Jewish people is important. Well, they, they couldn't be killing off each other, all the brothers, because they wouldn't have any kids. Do you think that in the ancient world, they were aware of the significance of the Jews, the extent that we are, that when Rome rolled in, that they had a sense that this people was as ancient as we know them to be and as quite set apart as we understand them to be? Uh, well, no. But yes and no. Uh, you know, Rome was very great, and the Jews were very small, and they'd been, you know, in servitude for a long time by the time the Romans showed up. On the other hand, there was something odd about them, because they, you know, the Roman way was to incorporate everybody into the pantheon, all, you know, the Theos is God, and pan means kind of everything, or wide, so the, so all the gods got in there, right? Big old wide place for all the gods to be in. And the Jews didn't want that. Right, they, they, their God was their God, and their God had not been destroyed by the destruction of their capital or their or the taking of the people off into slavery, and so they were special. And people understood there was something something unusual about these people. And to conclude this week, we'll come back next week and and talk about Exodus and the other three uh, of the first five books of the of the Old Testament. The the Jews, Walker Percy said, explains why he believed in God, because he wasn't going to stop believing in God until somebody explained to him the Jews. Have they had that effect generally throughout the West? Sure. And they're you know, I mean, think of the way that they're important to Hitler. Right. Hitler. One of the things Hitler thought was, God said, I'm not going to let anybody kill them all. Take that, God. So, of course, the, good, the, the, to, to the, the Jews are a great ancient people, in, in this respect that I named, that they are the people of the God for all people. They are unique in the ancient world. And then they are, to Christians, the... The, the people of the Savior. And you've spent time in Jerusalem. Yes. And, and uh, pretty hard to, um, to miss the significance of this story when you're there. But what about now in the rest of the world? And we have half a minute. Well, Christianity thrives in Asia, in, uh, in Africa, in, you know, 
America, at least a lot. So it's still very powerful, and the knowledge of the Jews go wherever Christianity goes and wherever Jews go. Dr. Larry Arn, I look forward to talking to you about their return from Egypt next week in Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the end of the Hugh Hewitt Chapel.